starts. Oh, you said starts. Did I? Sorry, record. What was I thinking? I don't know. Standard issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 274 of the Standard Issue pod scene. I'm Mickey Noonan, wishing us a happy ninth birthday. We're nine. Wow. Wowzers. I feel about 109. What about you guys? <laughs> I feel like a sprightly 99-year-old. <laughs> I think I've felt nine for the last, like, well, since I was nine. So 40 years, in fact, yeah. Amazing. What What's the secret, Hannah? Why am I a husk? <laughs> <laughs> uh, what's the secret? Uh Remaining infantile, Mickey, which I would have said, to be fair, you would be quite good at. I'm going to assume that's a compliment. Thank you, Hannah. It is a compliment. <laughs> it is a compliment. I mean, you like a fart joke, right? I fucking love a fart joke. Are you going to tell me one? There you go. No, no. just saying. Uh, that's, that absolutely reeks of nine-year-old. Could you could you maybe just make the noise for me? I feel like you've teased me <laughs> and not delivered. No, I don't actually like fart jokes, but uh, yeah, I didn't when I was nine. My favourite fart joke is from Vic and Bob. And Bob says, Vic, have you farted? And Vic says, no. And Bob says, what? Never. Uh, see, my favourite fart joke is the one at the end of that incredible Taylor Turner scene in uh, Psychoville. <laughs> it's all gone really wrong. There's just shouting and, and, and whatever's going on with Taylor Turner face and cancer chat. And then just David Bamber just, just farts just for about 50 it's, it's not. It's about 15 seconds, but it feels incredibly long and it's very funny. Yeah, so if we can rail through this so that I can go and watch that, that would be cracking. Ladies and gentlemen, Miss Tina Turner. Anyway, I'm Hannah Dunleavy <laughs> and in September I walked 93 miles, Whoop, which I appreciate isn't actually that much. It's only about three miles a day. That's all right. And I'm sure lots of people do that. I'm sure lots of people do that in their average life, but I don't usually... So it is unusual. It's an unusually high amount of walking for me. Don't diss your achievement. We're both very proud of you. You should yeah. be very proud of you. You're turning into the proclaimers and I've got nothing but love for that. <laughs> uh, I did notice the other day that Jane Hill, our friend Jane Hill, had been attempting to walk something like 10,000 steps a day, which is just way more than 93 miles. And yeah, so I suppose that gives me something to aim at. If we're going to talk about Jane, we have to mention that she's also a mastermind, I think. Oh, yeah. Is she? Yeah, I don't know what a specialist subject is, but yeah. There you go, I'm going to watch it then. Well, I'm Jen Offord and the surprise emotional highlight of my weekend was watching a boat being lowered into the sea. Where are you in your cycle, Jen? Why was this emotional? <laughs> when I think about it, I am due on like almost any day. Uh, my friend, Simon, who's my, my friend Tanya's partner, he like born and bred in Harwich and he decided one day... He turned 50 and he was like, I don't know how to sail. I'm going to learn. I'm going to buy like an old boat and I'm going to restore it because he does that kind of thing. And I'm going to like learn to sail on it. So he bought an old boat, Susanna. He's been doing a little YouTube channel on it. And then for some reason, he ended up with a second boat with his brother-in-law, Roger, called Tavita, not Davita, But apparently it means the same thing. It means Dave in Fijian or something. Anyway, Dave, Tavita. <laughs> was basically like languishing in a boatyard in Harwich. The, the guy that owned it became poorly and he couldn't like he couldn't go out on his boat anymore and they were going to cut through the boat to get to the trailer underneath it. This is how bad Nick, poor old Dave was in. 
and Simon and Roger have restored it. And yesterday, it got like winched up by a little crane and popped into the sea. And we're like, oh. is it going to sink? Is it going to sink? It did the sink. And off they went on it and motored around the corner and, you know, moored up somewhere. And I was like, this is actually genuinely quite emotional. And also, what I will say is his YouTube channel, even though I'm not particularly interested in boats or indeed restoration projects, is very good. I think he could be the next Jay Blades. Everyone watch it. Saving Susanna. Was the Howard's Way music playing in your head when this <laughs> happened? No, because I can't actually remember what that is, weirdly, because I love that podcast. But anyway, uh, yeah, it was it was genuinely delightful. And one of the old men on the barge, the pub barge behind us at the sailing club said, I never thought I'd see that boat back on the water again. That's an incredibly successful midlife crisis. They don't usually go that well when a 50-year-old man buys a boat. I know. Well done, Simon. Incredible scenes. Coming up, I get on the Zoom with journalist Jenny Kleeman to talk about her BBC sound series, The Gift, which explores how buying one person a home DNA kit as a present can change many people's worlds. <laughs> For the better? <laughs> Keep listening. No, I mean, that's how they solve crimes now, isn't it? That's how you find out something terrible's happened in your family. And I've got to let you know, listeners, Hannah hasn't heard the interview yet. She's just very good at this. <laughs> <laughs> I talked to actor Morven Christie about her new ITV drama Payback, which starts tonight, just FYI. We talk about a lot of other stuff too, obviously. How long have we been trying to get Morven Christie on the podcast for? Uh, I would say probably six years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So well done you. In turning off the blocks from Victoria Park to the Super Falcons, we're talking football. Footy, 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 ball, ball, ball. A lot of it about. And child poverty. What looks? Rated or dated, we watch 1968's Oliver. The use of an exclamation point really is (laughs) unnecessary. (laughs) But first, mind the gap, all of them. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph. Paul's fire alarm. Have you seen this, Jen? No. For why? Why are you putting a fire alarm? There was a really big vote in Congress last week. And during that vote, a fire alarm went off and the whole building was evacuated. And then later the police said they have footage of a Democrat, Jamal Bowman, pulling the fire alarm. Now, the right-wing press has gone crazy and is saying he's deliberately doing this in order to shut down that vote because that vote was crucial and they needed more time. He's put out a statement which says, oh, I was in a rush and I was confused and I thought it was the button to open the door. And I have to say, either scenario has just really tickled me. I I don't know which one is true, and I'm I'm not going to editorialise, because actually, frankly, whichever one is true, it makes me laugh, that either you've got someone who's in a blind panic just pulled a fire alarm, which which makes me laugh, because that's always the joke, isn't it? Like, oh my God, what are we going to do? We could always pull the fire alarm, that would be the end of it. (laughs) Or that there's someone there who's got about as much technical savvy as my mother when it comes to pressing <laughs> buttons to open doors and it's just stood there and gone, press this, press this, pull this, see what happens. I mean, to be clear, this is one of the younger ones. I know the Democrats have got a lot of really old people there, but this is actually one of the younger ones has ended and up setting up the fire alarm. Making decisions about shit that all affects the entire rest of the global population. Hurrah! Exactly that, yeah. Now, Hannah, 
Mm-hmm. Can we talk about public transport? Oh, God, do we have to? Okay, yes. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I know, I, I do wang on about it a lot as a frequent user of the rail network, but, you know. But, Jen, I agree. I have also yeah. used public transport a lot, and it's not always <laughs> yeah. the most reliable. No, and it does, you know, the public transport system does make a massive impact on the lives of the people who use it when it is as shit as ours. If you want any proof of that, just ask James Nikizi who wrote a hilarious thread on Twitter last week. Don't know if you saw it, Hannah, about did, a train yeah. journey from London to Edinburgh. Gone wrong. It was a very funny thread, but fair play to him, I would not have been laughing. Yeah, I think way. he seemed to be in one of those situations where he was overly tired and had become delirious with it. All kinds of transport have been causing a headache for Prime Minister Rishi Sunak this week after he came under fire for refusing to commit to a second leg of high-speed rail, a.k.a. the much-beleaguered HS2 project. And the second leg would be between Birmingham and Manchester. So, if you live in the Greater Manchester area, or indeed follow anyone based in the Greater Manchester area on Twitter, you'll know that people on that particular leg of the rail network have been having, I'll say euphemistically, a bit of a time of it (laughs) of late. So perhaps you can understand the anger of those awaiting better transport links. In an interview with BBC Radio Manchester, Sunak brushed off questions about the situation, focusing on local councillor favourites. Instead, that's right, lads. I'm talking about potholes. Hannah, you must be familiar with potholes as a former local newspaper. I was a bit disappointed that we didn't have a photograph of him crouching next to a pothole and pointing, which is angrily gesturing. (laughs) <laughs> Which is exactly local newspaper fodder. Can you can you crouch next to it, Sarah, and uh, point at it, please? <laughs> Speaking on the programme, he said, there's a lot of focus on this one thing, but actually, what are the journeys that people use most across Greater Manchester, all across the north? He actually said nerf, and then he like corrected himself. It's in their cars right now, getting to work, taking their kids to school, making sure that the roads are free of potholes. That's probably... Our priority number one. On the same day, he went on to announce a raft of measures via the Sun newspaper aimed at, and I quote, slamming the brakes on the war against motorists. Wow. I didn't realise we were in that war. Nobody told me. No one told anyone, Hannah. Um, Yeah, (laughs) but there you go. Now, as you know, I am currently learning to drive and the roads in my local area look like Frankenstein's monster. They have been patched together so many times. I don't think that's unique to my area. I think that's pretty common, right? Oh, I mean, to be honest, Jen, our pavements look much the same as well. Our pavements are fucking terrible around here. But it's almost as if he's missed the point that one side of the system being shit will perpetuate the other if it's not fixed. So, you know, he will need to fix the potholes if no one can take the train, right? Yeah. It's almost as if he doesn't understand that some people don't want to or can't drive and would like to use public transport. That having a functioning public transport system might minimise car use and the impacts of emissions on the environment. And finally, that as a major world economy, we should probably be able to afford to do both, right? Yeah, I mean, agreed. Yeah. The infrastructure, it be broken. I just cannot, I say this every time, I just cannot wait to be able to vote these wankers out. I know, yeah. Anyway, let's talk about Sycamore Gap, which is a bit less Sycamore and a bit more Gap. Uh, After somebody, or indeed some people last week, who knows, cut down the world-famous tree that stood at Hadrian's Wall for around 300 years. 
Much like any news, it first had to go through the ringer of social media. Why are you crying about a tree when children are hungry? Uh. And if that voice didn't make it clear, I'll say it out loud now. I don't feel that. If you propose to your partner at that tree or you're worried its loss will affect tourism in the area or you'd always just meant to stand there and ask people's names before you run them through, <laughs> I'd say, yeah, it's sad, isn't it? I agree. The loss of a landmark always has consequences, even if we don't yet know what they are. Next followed the arrest of a 16-year-old in connection with the incident, prompting a lot of experts to step forward and question whether a 16-year-old could cut down that tree. And by experts, I mean people whose experience stretched as far as once watching their neighbour use a chainsaw or watching an episode of Extreme Loggers, if indeed I haven't just made that programme up. And this sounds real to me. I would totally watch it as well. No one could put forward a solid idea of why the tree had been cut down, but they were sure it was a conspiracy and were prepared to sketch in the details later. Next came the arrest of a man in his 60s. Both he and the teenager have been released on police bail pending further inquiries. Was that man in his 60s a 69-year-old former lumberjack, uh uh-oh, Walter Renwick, who seemed to be prime suspect on Twitter given his skills with a chainsaw and the fact that he's been evicted from his farm after a dispute with his landlords? It seems not, although he was questioned by police over the weekend. I can see why people pointed the finger, he said (laughs) very magnanimously. (laughs) His landlords, by the way, are the religious order Jesuits in Britain. This story doesn't get any less wild, does it? Wow. Next up came the removal by the National Trust of a sapling which had been planted next to the felled tree by 27-year-old Kieran Chapman. Who's he, you might ask? And you'd be right to. Kieran's just a guy who finished work early and decided, and I quote, I'm going to restore people's faith in humanity. Oh, Kieran. Good luck with that, Kieran. Maybe they could borrow some of the seemingly endless faith you have in yourself. If anybody else is thinking that they might like to do the same, be warned it is a criminal offence to damage a UNESCO World Heritage Site. The National Trust is also very keen to discourage would-be planters. Yeah. It's funny, isn't it? Because we were talking about... We were. we talking a lot yeah. about actually doing a project. And we talked about me walking Hadrian's Wall. And I said, oh, there's loads of cool things you could see. And we'd actually talked about that tree. And then a week later, somebody cut it down. Also, there was a picture. There was some spectacular sky thing happened recently. And um, there was a really beautiful picture of the tree in the Sycamore Gap with like this beautiful sky in the background that was on the BBC website. So it's been like, despite not having rid of my consciousness for quite a long time, if I'm yeah. honest, it has been twice in just just a matter of weeks. Ahead was of that this. the Northern Lights? Yeah, I the think Northern it was. Lights have been visible quite low down. Yeah, I think it was recent... the Northern Lights. Yeah, yeah. Again, typical. I decide to go there. Someone cuts it down. I decide to go to Iceland to see the Northern Lights, and they suddenly become visible, like in this country. Anyway, it's, it's just miserable, isn't it? I said this on Twitter, but it's like I likened it to when those kids burnt down the Kai Sark, and you're just like, why would you do that? Like, what? Like, yeah. why would you do that? And also, this this idea that a 16-year-old couldn't do it. 16-year-olds that grow up on farms can do all kinds of shit. 
Yeah. They can drive cars at a really, really young age. Yeah. They can operate, you know, a lot of machinery. They're needed. They work a lot. So, yeah, it, it, I was just annoyed by the amount of experts that were suddenly making themselves known. I, I would argue, though, that a 16-year-old probably shouldn't have access to a chainsaw. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I agree. I agree. I've got a chainsaw and I, I, I get very scared whenever I use it. Very scared. Because all it takes is one wobble oh. of the ladder or whatever and you're fucked. Yeah. I won't even use a drill, yeah. Hannah. Like, I won't use an electric drill. Like, there's no way you'd get me anywhere near a fucking chainsaw. Just in case anyone wants to uh, point the finger at me. Uh, <laughs> very scared of chainsaws. <laughs> FYI. Anyway, Hannah, would you like some good news? Yeah, I feel like I need it. Okay. Now, I know this is a bit of a divisive one. And as someone who has known people with substance abuse problems... I'm not entirely sure where I sit on ideas about the decriminalisation of drugs. That's not to say I'm against it, just that I think it is nuanced and I'm still figuring out where I personally stand on it. I know you're fully on board with this, Hannah, someone who has also known people with drug addictions, and it's an issue that you've talked about on the podcast before. Yes, I have. I did an interview in 2018 with, I can't remember what they're called, but they are a campaign to decriminalise drugs. Yeah, I think it should be dealt with as a health issue rather than a criminal issue. That's fair enough. However, uh, in terms of me not knowing where I stand it, people are going to take drugs. And so to me, I find the argument that we should make it safer for them to do this to be a compelling one, right? Agreed. And so the, yeah. the good news, from my perspective anyway, is that the first ever consumption room for illegal drugs has been approved in Glasgow. It has the backing of the Scottish government which hopes it will help to tackle the number of deaths caused by drug use in the country. In Scotland, the number of deaths from drug use is higher per head than in any other European country, peaking at 1,339 in 2020. Wow. Yeah, that's a lot. Dr Saket Priyadarshi, Associate Medical Director of Glasgow Alcohol and Drug Recovery Services, said he hoped that the project, which will open next summer if all goes to plan, will reduce drug-related harms and provide opportunities for treatment, care and recovery. Yeah, I agree. I think that's good news. We're, we're quite behind on this. I know when I was in Australia, so that was like 97, 98, I was there. As in both, not, I can't remember what year it was. They were talking about, they called them shooting galleries. They were talking about bringing them in then, which is 25 years ago. Mm. Yeah. We're quite behind a lot of places, aren't we, in terms of our drugs policy. It's a lot more punitive than than a lot of other places. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm not quite sure why, what it says about us as a nation, but yeah. We'd just rather they overdosed on the street. I don't I don't really understand that, but Yep. More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week when we wonder at how it is that when life is shit for everybody, it somehow manages to be more shit for women. <laughs> the latest Costing Our Futures report, based on an annual survey by the Young Women's Trust, has shown that 46% of young women said that their finances had got worse over the last 12 months, while just 31% of men said the same. And if we compare that figure to last year, it rose 8% for young women and just 1% for young men, meaning that gap is widening. What's behind this? Well, here's what the Young Women's Trust has to say. Quote, Young women are so exposed to the cost of living crisis because they earn £5,000 less than young men right at the start of their working life. This would cover the average household's food 
and energy bills for the entire year and by the age of 25 would add up to the average house deposit for a first-time buyer. Wow. The income gap is caused by multiple factors, including young women being in lower-paid jobs, outright discrimination and a lack of access to the affordable childcare or flexible working they need. Young women are not getting equal chances to make a decent living for themselves and have fewer routes out of financial hardship. That's the end of that quote. The Young Women's Trust has all sorts of ideas on how to fix this problem, which are a lot more well thought out and technical than stop being dicks to young women, which was my idea. If you want to know more on how you might be able to help or to read the full report, go to youngwomenstrust.org. Yes, to start women off at a low rate and then just keep paying them that for the rest of their career. Oh, that's basically it, isn't it? Hello, I'm joined on the Zoom by journalist, broadcaster, documentary maker and author Jenny Kleeman. Also, the woman who has given me nightmares for the past three years, but we will get on to that. First of all, hello. Hello, what an introduction. <laughs> Nightmare fodder, Jenny Cleveland. Because I am still reeling from all of the things that you terrified me with in Sex Robots and Vegan Meat. Well, um, I didn't mean to, to give you nightmares, as, as they say on Crime Watch, but I'm glad you're still thinking about it. It was meant to be a thought-provoking book, a kind of dystopian view of the future. And so I'm, I'm glad it's still making you think the thoughts. So, so you researched that for quite a, a good few years. It was a very in-depth investigation into very near future technology. And it came out in 2020, which is when we chatted. Do any functional versions of what you were investigating exist? Lab-grown meat exists. It's gone through several different names. They don't call it lab-grown meat. When I wrote the book, it was called clean meat. I think now it's called uh, cultivated meat or cultured meat. I never quite get it right. I should be able to keep up here. Um, But that certainly exists. It got FDA approval in America, which means it can kind of be sold with the government stamp of approval on it. And it has been sold in restaurants in Singapore, and it's going to be officially on shelves in America very soon. But I think the tide is kind of turning against processed food and it is very highly processed, this stuff that is is uh, grown in a lab. So we'll see how successful that is. And AI is everywhere now. We're all used to, uh, you know, talking to computers as if they're humans and expecting them to talk back in an ever more convincing way. So, yeah, while the robots are not walking around, linking arms with us, having dates with us, the technology required for them to do so is becoming ever more present. Brilliant. There you go. There's my next week of nightmares. Thanks very much. (laughs) (laughs) What I loved about sex robots and vegan meat was your humour and the very high level of charming scepticism with which you approached all of your subjects that you were investigating. And I'm very pleased to see that's clearly part of your personality because it's also apparent in your new podcast series for BBC Sounds, which is called The Gift, and which explores what happens when, in your words, technology, genealogy and identity collide. So can you tell us a bit more about it, please? Yeah, so the gift is about those DNA tests like Ancestry, 23andMe, My Heritage. Uh, and the reason why it's called the gift is because it's become a really popular Christmas present, particularly like for your mum or dad, for people you don't know what to get and you think, I know what, I'll give them the gift of knowing who they really are. And people <laughs> take them without really thinking about what they're doing when they take them or what uh-huh. they might find out or even like what happens to their data. Like it's amazing people who might, you know, be wary and you know, might say no to cookies are quite happy to like give a, a big multinational corporation their DNA. 
the kind of jumping off point is that enough of us have taken these tests now that almost anybody can be found and a certain kind of secret about genetic identity is over because you might not have taken one of these tests but you will be related to somebody who has it could be a third cousin or a fourth cousin but it's probably someone much closer than that and that means that you can be found so lots of things that people thought the world would ever know about um they're suddenly being revealed kind of secrets and crimes the series looks at six different kinds of revelations so the first one is called fraud the second one is called justice so that's about kind of crime the third one is called mistakes and then there are other ones uh, like there is one called race which is what happens if you find out you're a different race to the one that you thought you were and how much can our genes really tell us about race there's one about health would you want to know if you had the alzheimer's gene for example and what happens if you do know that and then there's one at the end which is about kind of really really deep intense family secrets it's like an insidious six degrees of kevin bacon this yes (laughs) terrible well i mean you say insidious but some people it's been completely life-changing for them. So the first episode is about donor-conceived people, and it's really shocking. The extent to which donor-conceived people in this country, you have different human rights depending on when you were born. If you were born after 2005, you have a right to know who your donor was, donor sperm, donor egg. If you were born after 1991, then you have a right to know how tall they were, what their hair colour was. If you were conceived before 1991, you have no right to learn anything at all. So there are a whole bunch of people really desperate to know, not just because they're curious about who they are, but they want to know, for example, are there any hereditary conditions in the family? Of course. You know, like really serious things. And so they just have to become online sleuths. So I, I, I've done quite a few stories about donor-conceived people. And it's amazing that you get these people who, you know, in their day jobs, they might be, you know, nurses or librarians. And then they just become really good investigative journalists because they become really good at searching things online knowing where to put their DNA. So in one respect, yes, it's insidious because everyone can be found, but then it's really good for some people who've been desperately trying to find people. The fertility stuff is so fascinating as well because, you know, you throw in those dates of of when people can find out various things. You then chuck on top of that that there was very little to no regulation for such a long time. It's still not brilliantly regulated. And... Yeah. Also, some people are not very nice and will use your DNA and your donations in a way that they shouldn't be used. It's so hard to talk to Jenny about this, uh, listeners, because I don't want to give away spoilers because each episode is such a beautiful narrative. I say beautiful, terrifying narrative. (laughs) (laughs) There are twists, yes. And I really appreciate you you not giving them away. Each story is is full of twists and turns and that's the way we like it. But yeah, I mean, the, the point about all, you know, what What draws all the stories that I like to tell together is they're kind of quite extreme stories that hopefully make us all ask questions about ourselves and our own identity. Does your identity come from your genes? How much does it matter knowing where you come from? And how much does our identity in terms of race or in terms of anything else, how much does that actually come from our DNA? Because what they're also learning, and I think the gift absolutely shows us, is that it doesn't really matter where you come from. Different people react very differently to an unexpected genetic discovery, don't they? Yes. And some people really don't care about uh, knowing what their genetic heritage is. For other people, it becomes an obsession that consumes their lives. You know, families have been split up over the fact that somebody happened to 
give someone else a test at Christmas that shows that they weren't biologically related and that's the end of, you know, 70 years of being together, some test. So people react to it in different ways and, and that's fascinating for me. It's all about, you know, what matters to different human beings, really. Absolutely. At-home DNA kits are ridiculously popular. I did a little research and there's an estimated 4.7 million people and counting in the UK have used yeah. an, an at-home DNA test kit. And that number is 26 million plus in the US. Why do you think they're so popular? What do you think people want from them on a, a sort of basic level? They're marketed in a very clever way. Mm. They're marketed as if this is something that's going to tell you who you really are. And they're marketed also as a bit of fun. So, you know, we're all really into ourselves in this particular era <laughs> of social media. In it. We all find ourselves endlessly fascinating and intriguing but here is something that, that will really give you the kind of nuts and bolts of who you are and also they're advertised there's a lot of you know oh you might find out that you've got some exotic heritage the adverts have you know people swapping lederhosen for kilts because they discovered they grew up thinking they were german and then they found out they were scottish it's never like oh i, I found out my dad isn't really my dad <laughs> how would that advertising campaign go jenny <laughs> yes no um, and it, it's very much kind of in that, you know, uh, that vein of of sparking our curiosity, our everlasting interest in ourselves. And also um, just promising that we might be even more fascinating than we thought. And, and I think also, it, it, particularly when it comes to things like health and also knowing our family tree, it's promising us a kind of degree of control over the world that if only we had all the data we would know exactly what our place is in the world and perhaps even what our, our future is. But I also think you get to a certain point and you've bought your parents' presents for like, and as long as you live, you don't know what to get them anymore. You think, oh, I know, he's retired, he's interested in his family tree, I'll get him a DNA test. So it's clever marketing, but it also very much chimes with the spirit of our age, which is, you know, it is the age of individualism, the age of the selfie where we're, we find ourselves fascinating. Absolutely, identity instead of personality. But it's such a risk, right? Dig into the story of me. Uh, no, thank you. <laughs> yeah. What if I've committed a crime I've forgotten about? It, well, yes, there's that. But then also for me, I had to take a test for the series. So I, I took this test right at the beginning and I get my results in episode six. I was really, really freaked out about getting my results because also I had my producer here while I was opening for them and I didn't want to find out that I had some half sibling that I yeah <laughs> you know these are things that people really do find out or finding out also because my kind of ethnic background is quite unusual and I'd been told a family story about where I came from which doesn't necessarily chime with how I look mm. and this is the point that all families have stories that are passed down and you have to choose whether or not you actually want to challenge that story what is the benefit in really knowing as opposed to keeping that story that your mother and father have told you um, so, yeah, I had to deal with all of that and also know that I had you know, a man with with headphones and a big microphone in my face while I was clicking on it. Um, so that was interesting. I mean, I was totally going to ask you about that because in the opening episode, Fraud, we actually hear you opening and doing your test, having a little spit into a vial. Thank you for that. And <laughs> was that the first time you'd ever thought about doing one? Yes. I mean, I'm, I am some, I'm not a sharer. I mean, I'm on social media. That's I'm not... why we're journalists. Yeah, well, exactly. But I'm not. I'm not even on Instagram, and I should be on Instagram for work. But I'm on Twitter. My instinct is not to 
put myself out there and I don't talk about my husband ever. I don't talk about my kids. I mean, I'll talk in kind of broad brush strokes about being a mother or having children, but I, I, I'm very careful about what I put up out there because I am a journalist and I know how you leave these little breadcrumbs. They're very uh-huh. easy to, to follow. And also it does amaze me that we're trusting all these these companies with our DNA because they may be very trustworthy now, but we don't know who's going to buy those companies in 20 or 30 years. You know that I specialize in dystopian, weird corporate stuff. I do. Anyone can buy these companies and say, oh, this is interesting. What am I going to do with all this incredible information about how everybody is connected to each other in the whole world? And, you know, they could clone you. They could do all of this stuff with the information you've given. So I was very wary of that. But then, you know, the BBC asked me, a job is a job. So I did it. (laughs) I'm not going to ask you for the results, but are you okay? But now, but you never know, you might see millions of me running around in the future. Who knows? <laughs> I, think, I think that that's preferable to a lot of the stuff you put in my head, if I'm honest with you. So thanks for that. <laughs> Do you see The Gift, the series The Gift, as a cautionary tale? That's really interesting you ask me that because the donor conceived people that I spoke to, in fact, everybody that I spoke to in the making of, of, of The Gift, people who had huge revelations that changed their lives, they didn't regret taking the test and they were really grateful that other people had taken the tests that meant that they could make these connections. And the, the donor conceived people I spoke to said to me, please don't make a series that will put people off taking these tests because we're relying on people voluntarily doing this to find out who we are and it would be a disaster if people stopped taking them. I think the popularity of these tests means that a certain kind of secret is over. So the sort of secret where your fertility clinic might do terrible things or might make terrible mistakes or, um, you know, being on the run for a crime for 40 years or whatever it might be, or using donor eggs and sperm and not telling your children or having an affair and having a, a baby without telling anyone. That kind of secret is is basically going to be a thing of the past. And that kind of has to be a good thing for the people who are created that way knowing where you come from matters to a lot of people. To some people, it doesn't matter. But it's perhaps a good thing that if you want to look, the answers can be found out there. But I just think we need to kind of recalibrate our idea of privacy, really. But in so many other ways, we have to recalibrate our ideas of, of, of privacy. You know, we we are constantly being filled wherever we go. Computers are clever enough to, to track our faces wherever we are. You know, we have to rethink what that means in, in a world where in the past we were used to, at least in certain places, being private. Here she is, my dystopian queen. Um, <laughs> I think maybe as well, it's not necessarily a cautionary tale. It's just the contrast to, as you say, that very clever marketing, which is like, this is just a fun thing to do. Yeah. And actually go, it could be fun. It could be really interesting. It could be really valuable if in a very hard way, but there are consequences. Yes. And once that genie is out of the bottle, it ain't going back in the bottle. Yes, absolutely. And also, you know, I think in the past, these companies didn't really warn people that they might find out things that they didn't want to know. Now they do, but people just click through, you know, people click through the terms and conditions. They don't think, oh, you know, you may find something out about yourself that means that your family is blown apart. You may find out that you have a gene for something that means that your siblings also have the gene for something and they might not have wanted to do the test, but you might have found out this thing about your family. You know, the, the, the ripples of all of this go very, very far. And that's what drew me to it, really. It's something that people do casually as a bit of fun that has the most enormous consequences. That's really interesting, actually, that issue of 
consent and I'm not quite yeah. sure I've used the right word there but it, it doesn't just affect you this isn't something you're doing that just affects you it affects a huge number of people yeah. related to you absolutely I mean you are allowing you people with similar genes to you to be found by putting your genes up there and also you are uncovering things about people who have similar genes to you in terms of health in terms of ethnicity in terms of ancestry and family tree and that came up a lot in the series as well of, of people being upset because they'd found out things that they never wanted to find out because a family member had, had taken these tests. Yeah. Would you ever buy one for someone as a present, Jenny? Not having done this series, though. <laughs> I mean, no, not having done this series because I know that they would think it was a bit of an odd choice given what I know about them. But I, I don't want to discourage people from taking them because it has done a lot of good. And if you are interested in taking them, then do take them. But know what you're letting yourself in for, because it's not, you know, everyone thinks they might find out they're like 5% Native American or, or whatever it is. But um, that's not what happens. And potentially, I mean, also, even if you have results that seem really benign now, there's no guarantee that in 10 years time, someone might link up with you. And there might be revelations down the line. Once you've put your DNA out there, it's always out there and, and you can be found. That is something that really comes across in the gift. For all of the episodes I've listened to, there's three available as we're recording. There'll be four when listeners are listening to this. It hasn't been an instantaneous no. boom. There's been a small boom or a quite big boom, and then there's been a lot more explosions down the line. Absolutely. It's it's a slow burn. So that's the other thing is, is getting your results. You think that's where the revelations begin and end, but it's not the case at all. It's also that, that way it's marketed as well as... And you, you said it at the top, that kind of, oh, you might find out that there's something exotic about you. Can we stop doing that about people? That isn't helpful <laughs> to yes. society to exoticize various ethnicities. Also, in the race episode, we sort of talk about this, that actually, you know, there isn't really such a thing as being, you know, genetically Native American. The, these tests can tell you who your relatives are and they can tell you what your ancestry is in terms of your family tree. But there isn't really such a thing as being genetically um, French or genetically West African. It's not like you could look at a set of genes and say, oh, yes, that's what it is. So it becomes quite complicated, and especially in the promise that these tests are making of, of what they'll be able to tell you. They can't quite fulfil that promise. OK, I decided it is a cautionary tale, but in the best possible way, you know, because it's just providing people with information. So if you're thinking of doing yeah. one or buying one for someone... Go ahead, but listen to The Gift first, which is available on BBC Sounds, and then think about whether you want to go ahead with it. I think that's a very good summary of, of what I think. <laughs> <laughs> so, Jenny, I know that you are writing another book. Uh, yes. So, I don't know. Maybe I've not been frightened enough for you. Come on, hit me <laughs> with it. Give us a little taster. What's it about? The other book is not about dystopian technology. It's called The Price of Life. It is still pretty dark, Mickey. It's about all the different contexts in which prices are put on human lives because they are all the time. So, uh, in fact, I got my proof of it yesterday. I'm holding what? it now. It's really exciting. Each chapter is a number and it's the story behind each number. So the first chapter is 15,180 and that's the, the average cost of a hitman in the UK if you want to hire one. There is a chapter on how much it costs to make a baby $200,000 if you're gay, £13,750 if you're straight. Oof. There's the cost of a cadaver, how much it costs to buy a human body because you can, $5,000. That's cheap. It is cheap. They all feel pretty cheap for a human life. 
what's a bit worrying is is that there's also a chapter on slavery and child brides and uh you know it's much cheaper to buy a, a live human being actually than a dead one because you can get human beings even cheaper than that you can get a slave for about four hundred dollars i'm really sad that i'm not surprised by that yeah which yeah is the state of affairs today jenny are you shockable in any way anymore <laughs> um I am kind of shockable, but not by not by the the kind of weird stuff that I investigate. I mean, I had to go and interview a hitman for this book, and I had a steak with him in New York, <laughs> and um, I've just found it. He was really nice. <laughs> How very <laughs> gross, point blank of you. I know. So that kind of stuff doesn't shock me, but then you know, other other things shock me. Men on TV talking about whether or not women are shaggable shocks me. The fact that that still happens shocks me. Do you know what? I nearly opened with something about that. And I'm just I'm just so tired. And I know you yeah. must be so tired of this sort of shit. But it is so depressing just to be reminded that uh, no matter how intelligent you are, ultimately, for some people, that is just the, the primary value that they'll give you. That shocks me. Maybe shocks is the wrong word. That really depresses me. Um, but But perhaps the reaction to it, shows that I shouldn't be depressed and that people uh, people are not standing for it anymore. But yeah, that shocks me. And there's the other bit of Jenny Cleman that means that my nightmares were always tainted with a little bit of hope. Just that little bit of hope, that glimmer of light. It's the hope that kills you. It's the <laughs> hope that kills you. <laughs> I literally should have that on a t-shirt, but actually my t-shirt says it won't be like this all the time. So it's a similar <laughs> gist. Jenny, where can people find you on the on the X? Uh, I am at Jenny Kleeman, originally enough. But yes, please do find me. I've got a newsletter. You can sign up to it there. I can't advertise it or promote it on Twitter because Elon Musk downgrades any tweets that mention Substack. But I have a Substack as well. My book is out in March, but we should be talking about that nearer the time, I hope. Yes, we will. Yes, please. And thank you for chatting with me. A gorgeous pleasure as ever. Thank you so much. Love talking to you. Thank you, Mickey. Hannah here. I am joined on the Zoom by actor Morvan Christie. Thank you so much for joining us, Morvan. Thanks for having me. I was thinking earlier when I was putting some questions together on this, long time ago, sort of back in the golden days of Twitter, you and I used to talk quite a lot and then you just vanished. And I assume that you made a very sensible decision and decided to cut all of that social media nonsense out of your life. So I'm just curious, as someone who'd really like to do it, How's it been for you not being on those sites? Oh, amazing. I think it must have been like maybe 2016, 2017. Like it's a good five or six years mm. ago, I think. Oh, you're way ahead of the curve on leaving Twitter. I started to realise, because I was quite late joining it, I kind of like was really suspicious of the whole thing. I was like, I don't get this. I don't understand what it is. And then I signed up when I was living in Tottenham. And there was something going on one weekend, helicopters above my house. And I was like, what the hell's going on? And I was texting with a friend. And he was like, this is why you should be on Twitter, because you would know. And yeah. it was the Tottenham Riots, right? That was sort of when I signed up. And I didn't have any followers. And I just kind of like batted banter back and forth with my mates, which is what people did yeah. on Twitter in the beginning. And then, yeah, it just rapidly changed. I feel like some of the people I love the most in the world are the worst versions of themselves on Twitter. And I hated, like, you know, 20,000 people essentially having my number and texting me whenever they felt like it with their opinions about my hair or my jacket or whatever. Yeah, I just started to feel like not only was it not helping me, but it was sort of not helping the world. And I started thinking in those, like, 140 characters, you know, like, we sitting on the tube being like, 
oh, I could tweet something really clever about this. And it's mm. like once your brain starts to do that, you're lost. Yeah. Right? yeah. <laughs> like, so, yeah, I, I came off and it, it was weird because for a little while, it is a proper addiction because for a little while I was like, oh, this is really, I don't know what to do with myself. Mm. Like, this is really. And then once that initial sort of detox was over, it was just like, oh, my God, I feel free. So, yeah, I would highly recommend it. And Instagram's the only one I still have. And even that I barely use. Mm. But anytime somebody like shares something they've tweeted in their Instagram stories or something, even then I'm like, oh, God. (laughs) That horrible world. Yeah, it is an addiction. I'm currently trying to give up smoking. And actually, I'm doing all right with the giving up smoking bit. But I went to a pub the other day and I kept standing up. And it's because... I have this muscle memory of every so often I have to walk outside to have a cigarette. And I just kept yeah. doing that, even though I'm not smoking anymore. It is very strange. Do you know, do you know when I gave up smoking, I took up knitting because I was like, I need something to do with my hands. Yeah. Like, do you know what I mean? I was just like, because the because I smoke rollies as well, right? So yeah, like me too. the little physical thing yeah. of like rolling a cigarette, it was so sort of, I don't know, it's kind of meditative. It's a really relaxing thing, mm. right? Just the little action of doing it. So yeah, I took up knitting for a bit. But Twitter's harder to give up than smoking. Really? It's the brain thing. And you feel like you're missing out. And you feel like connections are being made that you're, I mean, it's all complete nonsense. Or maybe it's true, who cares? But like, I feel like the cost is higher than the reward. So like, that that's sort of what made sense of it for me. But it is really hard to give up. I'm going to have a go at both of them. I, I think I probably will be more successful with smoking. Because like you say, there is a reward to that, which is I won't die early. But um, I don't know about it. <laughs> yeah and you won't miss it Hannah honestly once you get past that that initial period you won't miss it there's just much there's so much grimness on there oh yeah genuinely it's yeah the worse it gets the easier the idea is that that I'm gonna leave yeah so let's talk about payback which is coming soon to ITV you in another lovely location you did have pick some nice places to film stuff more than I don't know if that's deliberate but yeah (laughs) This time you're in Edinburgh. It must be nice to be working close to home. Yeah, that was really nice, actually. And I live in Glasgow at the moment, so we shot most of it in Glasgow. So I actually got to stay in my own bed wow. while, while I was working, which is like, I, I I think I've done like maybe three times or something in my life. So that was really cool. But the downside of it is that because it's so sort of engulfing this job and it's so sort of emotional, it's actually quite difficult to manage having like a normal, like getting home and having a partner and animals and, you know, normal conversations to have to, you're sort of like, I can't, I can't actually. It's sort of easier if I'm in a random apartment in Morecambe or something. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? But no, it was, it was great. And then, and I was never more than, I think I was never more than like a 15 minute drive to work in the morning, which like it, they're really long days anyway. Right. So things like that really make such a difference to just, you know, if you shoot 12 hours a day, which we did on that, and then you've only got 15 minutes to get home at the end of the night. It's, it's quite, it's, it makes quite a big difference to your day. So it was cool. Yeah. What we can say about payback without giving too much away is you, you play Lexi, who is a woman who's not asked enough questions <laughs> leading up to this point <laughs> in her life. And when her husband is killed, she uncovers that he's been laundering some money and she kind mm. of gets dragged into the middle of that. Now, you don't strike me as the sort of woman that doesn't ask a lot of questions. So how do you get yourself <laughs> into, into that mindset? Well, what is interesting about her background, right, is that she doesn't have, like, she's sort of estranged from her family. She shared the business with her husband, right? She shared the company with him, but has also taken the last five years off to look after her kids. 
So she's kind of left everything. She's just left everything to him. It's like she's sort of allowed him to present her with a life that feels safe. I can identify with the idea of a woman being so exhausted by the fact that she's on her own and she has to do everything on Mm. her own, that somebody coming along with this kind of knight in shining armor kind of cultural nightmare that (laughs) we all have to fight off, just how soothing sort of anesthetizing that can be for somebody who's really lonely and so I think that's kind of where you find her as somebody that's really fully bought into the idea that her life is actually great because this guy's provided it for her and actually yeah I, I think that's part of what the story of her is for me is her reclaiming her resilience her independence her fight she's quite a she's not easy company you know what I mean she's she's not soft person and I think that she's in lots of ways been living a life that doesn't really suit the ferocity of her interior and something about this awful situation that she finds herself in Mm. kind of does and so she she finds herself with all of these extraordinary moral dilemmas that somehow she kind of I don't know she survives through them it's 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 interesting, but yeah, you're right. I'm not a person that doesn't ask questions. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, you've got a big assist in this, in that you have both Peter Mullen and Stephen McIntosh, both of whom are excellent at, at yeah. that sort of thing. Come here, and I'll just have a polite conversation with you, but then the underlying menace is, or maybe I'll kill you. They both just yeah. exude that stuff. That's got to be helpful in, in raising... Totally, uh... totally. Like, Peter obviously has played characters like this before and he's you know very glass region he's 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 very obviously castable as a scary ouija gangster right Mm. steven i've worked with before not playing a character like that and he's also just such a lovely gentleman like they both are such lovely gentlemen but yeah steven particularly i found deeply deeply menacing (laughs) he is really menacing yeah yeah, he that is. quiet little voice and his neat, neat clothes. He's got such neat costumes in this, and that somehow makes him even more scary. Yeah, I agree. God, when I was about fifteen, I saw the Buddha of Suburbia, and I became absolutely obsessed with both him and Naveen Andrews. <laughs> now I mentioned beautiful locations earlier. Let's just briefly talk about the A word, which was just the, the one mm. of the most scenic things on telly, set in the Lake District. I absolutely loved. Now, Alison's kind of a similar character in as much as you were saying that she's not she's not very warm. I can remember mm. when, when we were a magazine, I wrote a list of the best performances of the year by women and you were on it for playing Alison because she's just such an interesting character. And honestly, it's so well played by you that she is both someone I admired hugely, but I wanted to spend zero time with ever in my life. Yeah. If I knew her, I felt like I would not like her. But yet... Yeah. I would sit around and go, God, look what she's achieved. How does she have the energy? That sort of thing. Yeah. She was a really eye-opening experience for me because I sort of read her very literally. Like Peter had written, Peter Bowker that wrote it, he had written a woman who was handling something really fucking badly. Like he had written a person who had been given news that she was terrified of being given because she already knew something was was different about her kids and mm. she was already, you know, really not cool with that. And she handles it really, really badly. She handles it by trying to change the world to make it better for her kid to be in. And I don't think that's something that's hard to identify with, right? 
but somehow she kind of in a, in a show with that sort of tone this kind of light warm funny tone that really sticks out this kind of like aggressively you know this forcefully trying to mm. change things kind of person and yeah she she's kind of exhausting like she's a kind of exhausting woman but i think also added to by the fact that what pete had also done is write the male character lee engleby's character as this kind of like oh, you know, just an ever-so-nice dad that gets through everything by making jokes yeah. and doesn't really take anything too seriously. Like, it's a very truthful dynamic, right? But what it does is mean that the mum's the bad cop and the dad's the good cop. It was so... It was such a sort of brilliant illustration of that. Yeah. But then you get this kind of audience response to it, which is like, oh, he's a terrible bitch and he's just such a lovely guy. And you're like, yeah, but actually... Don't they feed each other in that way? Like, yeah. doesn't doesn't his lack of action feed her overaction? And doesn't her overaction feed his lack of action? Like, it's about relationship dynamics too, right? Absolutely. But yeah, I found her a fascinating and, and really, really difficult character to play because I could really understand her. But I also, like, it was so uncomfortable, some of the things that, some of the choices that she makes. It was so uncomfortable to play. Like you, I think she's a woman I'd... I'd if I watched that, if I wasn't in it and I watched that on screen, I'd sit and defend that character, mm. I think, to the hilt. But also, yes, we'd not want to hang out with her. And I suppose what sort of complicated it maybe a bit as a viewer when you first watch it is is that you're like, oh, this has got Christopher Eccleston in it. So he's going to be like the grumpy old curmudgeon or whatever. And he's not actually, really. He's, he's, he's probably the closest he's done to ever playing comedy. It's He's quite delightful yeah. to watch in it. So yeah, even Eccleston is playing someone who's warmer than Alison. It's interesting because it's, it is written by a guy. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I've done, I've done other projects with Pete and his work's great. But he does often have this this uh, thing in his work where he writes kind of like men that are funny and can sometimes be a bit hopeless, a bit crap, mm. right? And women who are like totally on top of things and actually really quite difficult to be around, right? It's, <laughs> it's part of the charm of Pete's work, right? Yeah. It's like how he experiences these northern women, these tough women like his mom and, you know. But it is also... It is also a person's perspective, right? A, a a particular writer's perspective. I think that story written by a woman would be totally different. Yeah. But yeah, you're right. That character, you know, even if you look at the relationship with Chris Eccleston's character and Pookie Cornell's character, they have that same dynamic where he's, you know, funny and a bit useless mm. and a bit crap. And, you know, and she's like totally on top of things and has a disabled son and is absolutely in control of her world and, you know, doesn't need him to sort of mess it up. Yeah. Like there's a very similar pattern there. But, it's, it, you know, it's quite pleasing to play. Like it, it, it is quite pleasing to play. And it, it obviously, um, I mean, I think I think that's probably why Chris wanted to do it for as many seasons as he did is because it was for him a role where people saw him being funny and saw him being, you know, sort of charming and in an odd way <laughs> but, uh, yeah um, because he's an odd character isn't he I mean he's essentially I guess Pete's take was that he's essentially on the spectrum too like aren't we all I think uh, well yeah exactly <laughs> now talking of playing comedy you were in 2012 and your dynamic with Amelia Bullmore was just just magic that how you your character just turned up and just demented her to the degree that she yeah. even took up smoking because she didn't want to miss out on the <laughs> meetings right. that were happening outside I mean I that's love right. Amelia Bullmore she's been on the podcast she's so great 
But you haven't done any comedy that I can think of since. Have I just missed that comedy or was that just a one-off for no, you? No, I, I really like don't like doing it. Really? <laughs> I really find it, yeah, I really find it super uncomfortable. I don't know why, like... 2012 is played straight as a dice, right? It's, it's it's played like a documentary. Yeah. And, I mean, you crack up doing it, but I crack up doing drama, so it, it doesn't really differ in that way. But a lot of comedy, scripted comedy, has that weird sort of tone to it where it's like, this is written to be funny. Yeah. And that, I just feel like I'm... I just feel so fake. I feel so uncomfortable. But with 2012, it was like... Actually, as an acting challenge probably one of the fucking hardest ones because we would have to shoot because the way John wrote that was like these people speak in gobbledygook weird professional language that makes no sense to anybody but themselves right but they go on and on and on and on and on for pages and pages so we would have scenes that were like 15 pages of dialogue with all of us round a table in this glass room where they can only shoot it from like tiny little angles because of the reflections and he would want to run the whole scene. And if you so much has got a syllable wrong, he'd go, stop, go again. And oh. you go right back to the beginning and start again. So it was really hard. We were shooting so fast that, like, memorizing that kind of dialogue was like, you know, I forgot my pin number. I forgot, like, I couldn't remember <laughs> my address at one point. Like, just the things that you had to push out of your brain to get those things to stay in. But, but yeah, it was such a good laugh. It was just a kind of unique... I mean, I know there's quite a lot of those kinds of shows now and and rightly so because they're brilliant. But that was, God, it was funny. It was such a funny show. Yeah. I loved everyone on it as well. It was just a really cool experience. Yeah, I mean, it is a great cast. I've got one more thing to ask you. When Me Too happened, mm-hmm. big deals of things being refilmed, one of which was the, the film with Kevin Spacey, All the Money in the World was reshot, one of which was the BBC drama Ordeal by Innocence, which you were in. Yeah. I wondered, in the intervening five years five six years however long it's been do you think that things have improved in the industry I don't know (laughs) (laughs) I think that in lots of ways yes like there are lots of demonstrable ways that yes they have changed but I think that the problems in this specific industry are just a reflection of like cultural problems that are way more deeply ingrained and way more unconscious than mm. than just, you know. So so they're not fixed because they can't be fixed. And I think well, they can't be fixed, you know, in a couple of years with, yeah. with, you know, a few newspaper articles. There are cultural issues, unconscious biases and unconscious kind of still just like unconscious misogyny. Mm. It's just kind of, it's in our culture. So of course it's in this industry, you know. And I think very quickly, like, I've seen a kind of weird post-Me Too sort of, like, backlash that very quickly rose up. The sort of anti-feminist movement, yeah. you know, this kind of very quickly this this thing has happened that it's like, well, what about poor white men, you know? Yeah, the kind of and Lawrence sure, Fox personified, yeah. Yeah, and it's all happened really quickly, and mm. it's very, um, there's a weird permissive attitude around it. So mm, things have moved, they've changed, but I don't know that they're better necessarily. I just think that there's a lot of work to do culturally and therefore there's a lot of work to do, you know, in my industry and every other probably still. Yeah, I fully agree. Morven, this has been really interesting. Thank you so much. Payback coming soon. Like I say, I've seen two episodes. Great job. Thanks, Anna. Lovely to talk to you. Thanks so much.
You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny Off The Blocks, that time of the week where we send the patriarchy for an early bath as we discuss all things women's sports. The WSL is back. Hurrah! Everything you'd expect to happen did indeed happen in the opening weekend of the English women's top flight. Everything except, if you listened to last week's podcast with Carrie Dunn, Aston Villa lost their opener against Manchester United. For their part, United boss Mark Skinner said he, and I quote, didn't expect the quality of his players as a team. Thanks, boss. Perhaps slightly bigger news here in terms of upsets is that Arsenal also lost to Liverpool. It's not all bad news for Arsenal, though, as they set a WSL attendance record for that 1-0 defeat at the Emirates Stadium as 54,115 fans flooded through the gates to watch. That is nonetheless a bit of a shocker for them, not least having lost their final two fixtures of last season and that early departure from the Champions League. Their boss, Jonas Eideval, admitted they need to play better and ask fans for more chances. As discussed previously on the podcast, they are without four key players, all out with anterior cruciate ligament or ACL injuries. But you would want to see a better start for a team of this standing. I'll be keeping an eye on their fixtures going forward. Moving on to some international news in the beautiful game. You might remember we also chatted last week and during the World Cup about various teams in dispute with their national federations. Nigeria, a.k.a. the Super Falcons, are one of those teams. Their dispute with the Nigerian Football Federation has been well documented. A little bit of background to some of the headlines from last week, which I'll talk about in a minute. Prior to the World Cup, the NFF signed an agreement stating that players would receive a $100 daily camp allowance with bonuses of $3,000 for a win and $1,500 for a draw. However, after FIFA announced that all players playing at the World Cup would receive a minimum of $30,000, increasing incrementally beyond the group stage of the tournament, the NFF kind of went, well, paid, aren't you? Maybe we don't need to bother which, as you can imagine, didn't go down so well. So according to a report by The Athletic last week, by the time of their round of 16 match against the Lionesses, the squad were owed all of their camp fees. That's 2300 per player. And to date, they have still only received $1,000 of those camp fees. They've also not received any match fees. Added to this, it was also revealed that they'd not received their $60,000 bonus from FIFA, although that is expected to come through at a later date. One of the players, speaking anonymously to The Athletic, is quoted as saying, they don't treat us as if we're here to play for our country, they treat us as if we are slaves. So that is just one other example of teams currently in dispute with their federations. And from the top right the way down to grassroots, women and girls playing football are having to contend with this bullshit. Over in East London, Vicky Park Rangers FC, who coach more than 120 girls aged between 6 and 16, released a statement last week about some bullshit they were dealing with. In the statement, they detailed their difficulty in obtaining grounds for training and how they were delighted to have successfully bid for the allocation of 3G AstroTurf pitch from their local council, the London Borough of Tower Hamlets, for training. This was funded by Sport England and the club entered into a contract with Tower Hamlets to use the pitch between 6 and 8 
every Thursday between September this year up until August 2026. So you can imagine how disappointed they were when the council terminated this agreement without notice and gave the slot to a men's team who had not been successful in the bidding process. The girls turned up to train and they were simply locked out. The statement said that despite their best efforts to contact the council, they'd heard nothing back. The good news is that there is a time and a place for a Twitter stink, apparently, and the mayor of Tower Hamlets himself ended up getting involved. By the end of Friday, an agreement had been reached, the club said, that would see the girls provided with a midweek training facility. Now, as I'm writing this, a new statement has appeared on the club's Twitter feed, thanking people for their support and adding, We hope this will be a great life lesson for our girls. Number one. Girls can advocate for change and make a difference. Number two, persevering in adversity is a worthy cause. And number three, we can rely on our community for support. No, you're crying. Congratulations to them. This is really good to see. That's all for me this week. And I'll be back next time with some more probably less premenstrual women's sports. Welcome to Rated or Dated. Mickey, which film did you have this week that we thought, is this really standard musical fodder? (laughs) Well, it's a good question, Jen. This week we watched 1968's Oliver, a chipper tale of child poverty, child slavery and domestic violence with songs. (laughs) Based on Lionel Bart's 1960 stage musical of the same name, itself an adaptation of Charles Dickens's much darker 1838 novel Oliver Twist, and directed by Carol Reed, Oliver danced away with six, count them, one, two, three, four, five, six Oscars and was nominated for another five, including one for Ron Moody, who I love and we will get to. Mm. Carol Reed was one of the winners and if you're listening thinking, how marvellous, a female director by getting a Best Film Oscar in the 1960s, uh-uh. I thought Carol Reed, because he did The Third Man as well, and I thought Carol Reed was a woman for years, yeah. Well, bless your heart, Hannah. Carol was very much a man, so I was, yeah. I want to say for years, I mean, when I watched, first watched The Third Man when I was like, I don't know, 12, till my dad disabused me of this idea when I was like 14 or something, <laughs> yes. I think it's, a, it's an easy mistake to make her. <clears throat> Oliver is packed to the rafters with powerhouse performances with the aforementioned Moody as Fagan and also Oscar-nominated Jack Wilde as the Artful Dodger, Oliver Reed as Bill Sykes, directed by his uncle Carol, in case mm. you were wondering. Sharni Wallace as Nancy, Harry Seacombe giving it his all as Mr. Bumble, <laughs> Leonard Rossiter clearly typecast as Undertaker in the 1960s, yeah. an excellent bull terrier and also excellent owl, and Mark Lester as our titular orphan, Oliver Twist. Quick question, this was clearly a big deal for child actor Mark Lester. Where do you think he is now? What's he up to? Isn't he mostly like telling stories about how he's secretly the father of Michael Jackson's children or something? Jen gets one star. <laughs> I've had that story. Yeah, he's godfather to Michael Jackson's kids and for a while there claimed that he could be their real dad, but we, we genuinely don't have time to go into this. He's also an osteopath and acupuncturist. There you go. Well done, Mark. Wow. <laughs> Back to the film, which is fair to say was a total smash with global takings of £77,402,877. I love how precise that is. Yeah. A 90-week run at the Leicester Square Theatre upon opening and rave reviews from the critics. 
The New Yorker's Pauline Kale reveals she'd walked out of the stage version, but bloody loved this bad boy. I am paraphrasing a little bit there. Sure. Our old pal Roger Ebert gave it four out of four, particularly praising the film's child actors and its universal appeal. And fair dues, Oliver is the last G-rated film, which is kind of a universal, to win the best film Oscar. Somewhat oddly, the film starts as full musical with very little spoken rather than singing words, but calms down as it gets going with actual talking amid the total bangers. I'm sorry, I'm not even being sarcastic. Food, glorious food, consider yourself. I'd do anything. You've got to pick a pocket or two. They're all stunning set pieces. And my personal favourite, reviewing the situation, sung by Moody, is the comic show stealer. I was sort of surprised that I still knew most of the words to the songs. Yeah. Although I did watch this film a lot as a kid. What about you, Sue? Yes, interestingly, I watched it, but I think you've just explained it because almost every song that you mentioned there, except for a review in the situation, happens in the first half of Oliver. So yes, Mm. I did watch it a lot. I did love it when I was little. However, the second half when I watched it last night was way less familiar to me which suggests I got bored and wandered off, which isn't surprising because it's actually very long. And the further it gets into the film, the more scenes go on for somewhere between 30 seconds and five minutes too long. There could have been a lot of judicious cutting in a lot of this, I think. Okay. Jen? I don't think I've ever seen it the whole way through before, but I know all of the songs. What I will say is, sort of like you, Hannah, I was a bit like, oh, I know all of it in the first half, and then the second half I was a bit like, not so much. So I think maybe I did watch the first half once, but I yeah, I think I've read the book. But also, I started watching it with Lyra, and uh, <laughs> we stopped watching. It with, <laughs> I stopped watching it with her for reasons that I'm sure we will go on to uh, discuss. But she did say after like I don't know the fourth song in a row when um, he's walking through the snow with him, the boy for sale bit. She goes, "Mummy, why isn't he talking properly?" <laughs> So, what's going on? We join our plucky wee orphan in the workhouse, about to eat yet another delicious serving of gruel. Having drawn the long straw... Sorry, what? Anyway, Oliver has the temerity to ask for another portion. Workhouse master Mr Bumble is outraged. The governors are even more outraged and make Bumble sell the kid. An undertaker buys him, but Oliver gets into a ruckus with another apprentice who's slagging off Oliver's dead mum. He gets chucked into the cellar as a sing and a cry before realising the window's openable and he could escape. And now the story we've all been waiting for, really. Oliver walks almost as far as our Hannah's been doing to get to London, (laughs) where he is promptly adopted by the artful Dodger into a gang of child pickpockets. I do stand at the side of the road where people go past with my arms out really pitifully, really pitifully, like, help me, but nobody ever stops. Have you snuck onto uh, a little horse and cart yet? Oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Uh, that'd be an incredible image for Instagram, just you in a barrel of cabbages. <laughs> I'm excited. <laughs> anyway, Oliver is promptly adopted by the Artful Dodger into a gang of child pickpockets led by Fagan and enthralled to canny burglar and all-round nasty bastard Bill Sykes, who absolutely does not deserve his girlfriend Nancy or indeed to be anywhere near women or people at all, the twat. First day out on the pickpocketing job, though, Oliver takes the fall for the Dodger when the latter nicks the wallet of wealthy London man, Mr Brownlow. Luckily for Oliver, a bookseller saw it wasn't him, and instead of being put behind bars, he's taken home with Mr Brownlow to a fancy new pad. A happy ending for the boy? Nah. 
Bill Sykes fears he'll rat him out, and so with Nancy's reluctant help, steals him back. I did that a bit, Nancy, with Nancy's reluctant help. I don't know where I'm from. Yeah. Reluctant help. There's a H in that. Steals him back. Meanwhile, Mr Brownlow has an inkling that Oliver might be the son of his niece. How convenient! And has his intuition confirmed when Bumble and his missus show up with a locket belonging to her. Nancy, far from happy with Sykes' plan to use Oliver in his next burglary, risks a visit to Brownlow and organises to hand the boy over at midnight on London Bridge. But Sykes has Bullseye, his dog, on Oliver guard duty. So Nancy makes a literal song and dance about it to escape with the boy. Sykes isn't far behind, though, and when he catches them, he bludgeons Nancy to death. Now, this is sort of off screen, but given how very chipper the rest of the film is, it is still fucking brutal, I think. Mm. Too brutal for Doggo Bullseye, who decides he's not going to be a good boy for Sykes anymore and refuses to go with his master, who scarfers with Oliver. Instead, Bullseye goes back to Nancy's body and barks until the police and the handy mob arrive. Give that good boy a treat. Sykes has made it back to Fagan's lair and on seeing the approaching mob, Fagan and his gang of kiddiewinks scatter. Sykes is shot, Oliver is saved and Fagan and Dodger skip into an upbeat future of sprightly crime. Now, the words I've used there, chipper, sprightly, I wondered if you think it works as a film and by that I mean that sort of chipper approach to some really quite horrible, brutal topics. Um, I don't know... I can't make my mind up. All I will say is, much as it does seem inappropriate, it made Charles Dickens accessible for me in a way that perhaps my dad nagging me to read (laughs) David Copperfield and A Tale of Two Cities and Great Expectations. Oliver Twist is the first Dickens I read because I'd seen this and therefore it seemed accessible. It Uh seemed, and it was familiar. And then obviously I went off and read more Charles Dickens because I think it's brilliant. So... I would say yes, but perhaps in a way it helped introduce people to Dickens, so perhaps that's no bad thing. Agreed. Yeah, I don't really I don't really know what the answer to that is. Lyra said to me again as we were uh, started watching it, I can't remember exactly what she said, it was something along the lines of he's not very nice or something like that about Mr Bumble or whatever. I'm like, well no, he's he's not very nice, dear. And she was a bit like, well, why isn't he very nice? And I said, well, it's going to be quite hard. Because <laughs> I just talked to her like she's an adult. Uh, so this is going to be quite a hard uh, concept to uh, explain to you. But this film is about child exploitation. So, uh, <laughs> no, he's not very nice. Yeah, I just I just was struck the whole way through. What a weird thing to make into a musical and like a, a sort of family-friendly film. Because it's not family friendly it's horrendous it's interesting isn't it that opening song where they do food glorious food and it's all very choreographed i said out loud to myself because gary obviously refused to watch it because they were all singing i thought this is right for a muppets adaptation and then like yeah three songs in i was like oh god no this is way too bleak for the muppets way too bleak there is a kids film disney called i think oliver and company oh it's about cat yeah is he? Oh, I thought it was a dog. Well, I mean, I, I don't know that I've seen it, but yeah, I mean, it does seem to be a story that lots of people are keen to put in front of children for whatever reason. Discuss. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting as well. This is a film about child exploitation. Do you want to guess how many child actors aged between like eight and 15 were used? Oh. Oh, and what happened to Jack Wilde is really sad. Yeah. 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 I don't know what happened to him. 
Uh, I know he's no longer with us. He got into the booze became, and the drugs, it, didn't he? Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, a lot of them do, don't they, mm. child stars? So He was actually one of the yeah. eldest as well. He was 15. Perhaps it was just radiating off Oliver Reed and he just sort of subliminally picked it up off him. I don't know. I don't know, like drink and drugs and an early death or pals with Michael Jackson. I don't know which is worst. The other big problem with Oliver Twist is Dickens's Fagan is viciously anti-Semitic. He's a corrupter yeah. of children, avaricious, mendacious, a monster. Here, and indeed for many years on Broadway, he's portrayed by the remarkable Ron Moody, who was himself Jewish, and he wanted to challenge, when he took the role, what he quite rightly considered to be, in his words, an unfair, unpleasant image of Jewish people. I feel like he's undercooking it a little bit there. But indeed, having reviewed the situation, Fanar, Moody made Fagan much more likeable and clownish than his literary counterpart. I'd go so far as to say that his Fagan is lovable. And I wondered what your thoughts were on this. Oh no, I don't no, agree. I wouldn't. I wouldn't say lovable. Mm. I, I will say that when Dickens wrote this, he received a letter from somebody, some peer, you know, who someone who moved in his circles, a Jewish woman, who pointed out to him how anti-Semitic Fagin was. Mm. And Dickens, in a quite early example of perhaps unconscious bias rather than outright anti-Semitism, was like, "What have I?" and apparently attempted to make alterations in the second edition before it published and they wouldn't let him do it. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So I think regardless of whether or not Ron Moody's performance worked for people or not, it actually isn't as far from Dickens as perhaps Dickens later wanted it to be. It's interesting as well that the composer of the the musical that this is based on or adapted, Lionel Barr, also Jewish, has really played up the Jewishness of Fagin by making all of his songs very, very Jewish. The, the clever music, yeah. which is why I love them. They're absolute joys to listen to. It's drawing more attention to the fact that this character is, is meant to be Jewish, I think. Well, he goes quite, I think, in, in that one in particular, reviewing the situation, he goes quite, like, hammy with it. He really does ham up the Jewishness. He affects an accent in it that yeah, isn't he does. really obvious in the rest of it, I think. yeah. Like when he's just talking normally, he's like, you know, just like East End, whatever. And then he, when he sings, it's like, yeah, he hams up this accent. After I'd stopped watching it with my daughter, I should add, um, in light of my comments in Bush Telegraph the other week, uh, I was just like watching it going, this weaselly fuck. Like, he's awful. He's just like, first sign of trouble. He's like, fuck you lot. I'm worming my way out of this shit. Like, blah, blah, blah. He's a weaselly fuck. I don't think he's lovable. Actually, you could argue, and I'm not saying that, uh, you know, anything that he does is correct, but the, being Jewish at that period in London made you a, a sort of a marginalised person. The views espoused in it reflected the time, right? Right. The point being, Fagin perhaps doesn't have as many options as... Okay, it, I see what you mean. As, yeah. you might, as it might appear. Okay. Also, Bill's made it very clear that if any of them rat him out or like there's trouble, it's Fagan who he's going to kill. I would not cross Bill Sykes and his massive, massive face. No, I would not. <laughs> no. He's such an interesting looking character. I can't imagine anyone but Ollie Reed playing Bill Sykes. Well, interestingly, Michael Caine was really up for the part. And I think no. Michael Caine would work quite well because he's the only other person 
that I can imagine when he flips that letterbox and looks through and all you can see is his eyes. Yeah. He's the only other person that I can I, I can imagine looking so sort of distinctive and sort of annoyed by their eyes because Oliver Reed has just like an enormous pair of eyes really as well, does, doesn't yeah. he? Just staring in through that letterbox. This was the first time I'd ever encountered Oliver Reed as an actor, like as a kid watching Oliver. And mm. I was terrified of him because of oh, this. Yeah. I think he... It's that scene where we first meet him and he says nothing and yet he owns He's all of it. dark as fuck. I said to my mum, because I, I was like, I don't actually know that many films. He's so famous, Oliver Reed, but I couldn't tell you any other films he'd been in apart from Gladiator, which obviously famously he died during the filming of. <laughs> and my mum said, oh, Women in Love. Mm. Women in Love yeah, is The, the Naked Wrestle by the Fire. Come on, Yeah, Jen. which I was a bit obsessed by because I was really quite in love with Alan Bates when I was younger. Fair. Yeah. But yeah, my mum was like, he's he's just so handsome. And I was like, Izzy, he's got such a massive face. But yeah, <laughs> I was just like, did he ever play Heathcliff? And she was like, no, as in Wuthering Heights. So I was like, because I really feel like they missed a trick there. Mm. He would have been a very good Heathcliff. Yeah. He does Nasty Bastard very well here, doesn't he? Mm. Yeah. Okay, so the counterpart to uh, Bill Sykes is, of course, Nancy. And so I thought, obviously, we're standard issue. Let's talk about the women. There's one of them in it. She sings yeah. two songs about loving her abuser and gets killed for her trouble. So how did we feel yes. about Nancy and Nancy's treatments? Yeah. Well, she's a bit yeah. too clean, isn't she, Nancy? She she belongs in a film rather than, you know, in the novel. She has no sort of marks on her. Like, if you live with Bill Sykes, like she does, it, a man like that. Nancy would have old bruises on her. Nancy would be a bit grimy. Like, when does how often does Nancy have a bath and her hair is very clean? You know, there's a, it's a very Hollywoodized version of her. So she seems in this less fragile than perhaps she appears in the book. Because although she is like she makes decisions, you know, that are bad for her. She makes decisions that are stupid and bad for Oliver, but then she also makes decisions that are bad for her that right. uh, and that ultimately lead to her death. I don't mean to victim blame her. That's not what I'm saying, but I'm saying the the decisions she makes. She knows how and, that's going to go, right? Yeah. She must and, know that. And, and so portraying her as this way chirpy cockney sort of, it doesn't really fit with, with what Nancy would be in real life and what Nancy is in the book, which is just a slightly more desperate, fragile creature. And those songs don't help, I think, to um, be honest. Papa, um, papa. Come on now. <laughs> That's how it goes, Helen. Everyone knows. me. I mean, it's just so... Although, arguably, I don't know. A lot of people fail to understand why women stay with men who treat them like that. So maybe that's an explanation, even though it's not a correct explanation. Or perhaps even in some cases, it might be a correct explanation if women have been ground down I think it's quite sympathetic in its understanding of domestic violence, although I actually think that's probably accidental rather than yes. on purpose, yeah. right? Yeah. Because yeah. there are so many reasons that a, a woman can't leave or won't leave or doesn't leave an abusive man. Yeah. And those songs, while they are my least favourite in the way that all slow songs tend to be my least favourites yeah. in any sort of musical, they are kind of key because you're looking at it going, come on, Nancy, why? Why? Yeah. And I think... My beef with it is that they allow him to say, I loved her afterwards. That yeah. annoys me more than her 
doing what so many women in that situation and then it's you know not as violent but a situation I've been in like make excuses so I think yeah. it is accidentally sympathetic yeah and I love I that she's she has to be that bit more spirited otherwise you wouldn't believe that she would go against Bill's wishes yeah but she's also like you know I suppose you're right, Hannah, this is the point you made really about how it doesn't necessarily reflect the book. She's dependent on him. He's a pimp. What Nancy does is is a bit sort of seen through gauze in this, really, isn't it? Nancy's just a chirpy cockney who hangs around in a bar. Mm. Mm. Yeah, they put Vaseline yeah. on the lens, Hannah, haven't they? Mm. They have, yeah. There is actually another important female voice in the film. And that is Oliver's singing voice because... Yes, I noticed yeah, that. That was actually done by Cass Green, music director Johnny Green's daughter, because little, little Mark Lester couldn't hold a tune in a bucket. Actually, doesn't even manage to mouth a tune very well. Couldn't even like mouth a tune. <laughs> he, he doesn't even, especially in the interminably long... That his mouth doesn't, isn't even really moving that much to indicate that he's singing. He's just sort of speaking the words. He's probably very tired because that actually took six weeks to film, which is approximately <laughs> how long it feels like you're watching it for. Yeah. Uh, oh, wow. It's a long It's, it's a like long a mini stretch. Olympics opening ceremony. <laughs> Get this, though, right? The whole production, the whole film was filmed entirely in the Shepperton Studios back lot, that Bloomsbury Square, built on set, mate. It's impressive. I, I was looking at, the, um, at London Bridge thinking, like, obviously, that's not London Bridge, it's a set. But I was thinking, what are you talking it about, actually... Jen? It's got fog on it. Of course it's London Bridge. <laughs> I was like, it actually looks like London Bridge. Fair enough. They've, done, they've You know, they've done a reasonably good job here. It is interesting. It is a depiction of London. So it's not quite Victorian. It sort of goes into Victorian because Dickens started writing Oliver Twist four months before William the Fourth died. Am I on my right? William, Hannah, you're good at this. Yes, yeah, you're right. Before William the Fourth died. So it is that era. But then, of course, goes into very early Victorian times. But I'm like... Victorian London, we know this was not a good place for poor people. Mm. It was not fun. But I want to go to the place where I'm wandering along. Someone scoops me onto a merry-go-round. I can just take an apple if I want one. It looks <laughs> quite good fun, if I'm honest. <laughs> okay, let's talk about the songs. It's well charted on here. that We're not huge fans of musicals. We all have our exceptions to this. If you're more interested for me and Hannah, see the West Side Story episode of Flicking. Sorry, Ezra. And indeed, Jen, I know it's one of your favourites. <laughs> yeah. But with Oliver, I am going to argue there is barely a duff number in it. That's a bold claim. I don't like the slow ones. I don't like who no. will buy. It's like some weird experimental choir shit that's gone a bit wrong. <laughs> it's nightmarish. There's a little bit where literally a woman just pops up on the stairs and goes, Milk! It's <laughs> terrifying. I, I don't like Nancy's songs particularly. I suppose Umpapa is mm. a bit more fun than the other ones. It is the only ones for me, Fode, Glorious Fode and Consider Yourself and I'd Do Anything. They're the ones that, yeah. Yeah, I think I think there's only three that I like, which are I'd Do Anything, Consider Yourself and I like You've Got to Pick a Pocket or yeah. two. I think the set pieces, like you say, Hannah, they're very much in the first half, are gloriously well done. They're, yeah. they're huge and lavish and so entertaining. Yeah, I mean, I, like I say, I really liked it when I was little. We sang along, you know, uh, Charlotte had to be Nancy and I had to be like the Artful Dodger or whatever because I was little. But yeah, we sang along. We really liked it. So I covered how much money it made, right? It did really, really well. 
interesting little fact here. Lionel Bart, he also went down a very slippery path and, uh, yeah, got into a lot of booze and drug and money problems. And he sold the rights to Oliver to Max Bygraves. Remember Max Bygraves? Yes. How much do you reckon Max Bygraves paid for the rights to Oliver? A whiskey chaser in a bar? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, A gold crown. He paid £350 for it and quickly sold them on for 250000 Right, I'm going to ask the question. Oliver, rated or dated? <sighs> it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, it's obviously mm. dated, as in it's not just made like a long time ago. It's set a long time ago. But is it a, a film that I didn't mind watching right up until about an hour and a half in and then I was like, this should be over by now? <laughs> uh, rated. <laughs> <laughs> that was a caveat rated if ever there was one I think this is tricky because I do think it's dated I, obviously we've discussed the anti-semitism we've discussed the domestic violence um, like they both still happen though sadly Jen they do but I don't think such <laughs> an anti-semitic I hope an anti-semitic character would not I hope a character would not be written in that way now so I do think it's dated but I, I had a reasonably nice time watching it I'm going to argue it's rated because, one, I had a fair nice enough time watching it, and two, for something that Hannah said earlier, in that I still think it would be a good way to get, clearly not Lyra's age, but certain age of kids, into Dickens. They'll have a horrible surprise when they get there. (laughs) Yeah. Who is picking next week's and what are we watching? It's me, and this is another film for children that might not be suitable for children. We're going to be watching Watership Down. Jesus Christ, Hannah. (laughs) Standard issue for all women.